Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. I'm Stephanie Ratte, a first-year student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and I'm excited to welcome Dr. Patty Limerick, who's the faculty director and chair of the board of the Center of American West at the University of Colorado Boulder, where she is also a professor of environmental studies and history. Dr. Limerick was recently named the new Colorado State Historian, and she's a recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship and a member of the National Council for the Humanities. She's the author of several books, including Desert Passages, The Legacy of Conquest, and A Ditch in Time, The City, the West, and Water, which explores the history of water in Denver. Thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to start off by talking about the Center of the American West. Can you tell us a little about the center, what the center has done and its approach to environmental issues? The Center of the American West came into being almost 30 years ago and wandered around, I think, for a while, trying to figure out what to do. And then it seemed more and more to us that there's such a need for civil conversation and separating the noise from the signal and taking out the parts where people are having environmental disputes and they accuse each other of having terrible moral character and wanting to ruin the earth or end all jobs or just cut down that level of uh, contention and get to the serious and substantive disagreement. We, We certainly are not aiming for a group hug where everybody weeps and falls into each other's arms, but but just to at least be clear about where the serious lines of contention are. So we have a lot of opportunities when you put that together. I think it's a wonderful route for young people to see themselves taking their uh, studies in the kinds of fields that, that you're looking at and applying those to the world, because if we don't have universities, and I will say young people are more disarming than older people, so play that while you have it. Uh, it'll go away at a certain point, and you can still do things. But in the meantime, the, the chance to be a moderator, to be an umpire, to be a referee, and to bring people into productive conversation, that is just a great thing for young folks studying environmental issues. So what do you see as the most important environmental challenges facing the West today? And how do you think your perspective on these issues is informed by the fact that you're a historian? Well, uh, to be an historian is really... You can be you can be subject to people saying, "Oh, I always hated history in high school, and we had to memorize facts." Well, that happens. In the meantime, if an individual has amnesia and loses all memory of the past, that's not thought to be a good situation, and you'd get that person to an emergency room really fast. So, when a society wanders around having amnesia, that's that's really bad, and just as bad as when it afflicts an individual. But professionals working in various environmental fields can be so pressed by the urgency of the moment that they don't get that chance to think, how did we get here, and to get over that amnesia. So the history field, I think, works really well for all the things that matter. Um, We do a lot in water management, and I will say one thing that's very refreshing about being in the world of water utility managers is that they are people who cannot have a sterile and pointless debate about climate change. They have to say, as the head of Denver Water says, frequently, I'm in the business of managing water. I have to be reckoning with climate change. And Denver Water has a very fine young woman who does scenarios about possible future arrangements of precipitation and temperature and so on. So the water managers do have a down-to-earth, this is what we have to reckon with. We're moving out of a uh, 
a, pl a time where you could look at the hydrologic records and sort of get some sense of what you might expect in the future. And now, of course, that recognition that the new normal is that there isn't any any normal. So we, we work on water issues and we try, I guess one thing we can say is that let's not be romanticizing the ease and comfort of the past. Let's not say that all of society once had a harmonious agreement on what to do with resources, that there are quite bitter battle, battles between the Western Slope and the Front Range of Colorado nearly a century ago, a little bit short of a century ago. So anyway, so we try to say the core is really let's not be spending quite so much time fighting each other when we can look back at the history and discover that many of our dilemmas originated before we were born. So it makes much more sense for us to live with that heritage and to work with each other on that. So water is certainly a big one, energy, uh, oil and gas development with this. I, I think we have to see uh, the price drop as an opportunity to think because when it was just a uh, frenzy of development, it was very difficult to be reflective and wonder about our pacing and the consequences, uh, especially as oil and gas in the front range of Colorado was moving into suburban and, and small towns. Um, anyway, so it, it's the energy issue is one that we've done a lot on uh, hydraulic fracturing and, and responses to that. And then I think just the, the bigger picture of public lands management, which is, my heaven, that, I wouldn't mind if that got more boring. I could accept that uh, pretty well. But just that question of how was it that the land went from public domain into private ownership with some lands reserved for public ownership but bordering on private lands so it's never a calm well there's this kind of land that's in private property there's this kind of land that's in public ownership with all kinds of tensions because in fact water moves across those borders invasive plants move across those borders um, people certainly move across those borders fire wildlands fire so it's just it's a very great time to be trying to carry messages uh, over that public and private divide since there's nothing of consequence that you can just say we'll look at one or the other then the I guess I wouldn't call it a cycle because each each manifestation is different but a rise in another round of that shouldn't those lands be re the public lands be returned to the states or or divided up with individuals well this would be like our I don't know what ninth chapter of that over the last century and usually there's a moment where the states recognize that that's going to be really expensive to manage that land. Um, and individuals can have a little historical reckoning with the fact that much of the public land is land that nobody wanted for farming, or they tried to farm it, and it, it didn't work out. So there's usually a, a frenzy and then a, hmm, maybe this isn't the best approach, but it's a little surprising to see that we're, we're doing another round of that. Mm-hmm. So I think this actually leads really well into um, my next question about the work that you've been doing, kind of looking at bureaucrats in the Department of the Interior. Yes. And so what made you, was, is, are so these issues that you're talking about, are, is that what made you look at it? And it's a really interesting yeah. place to look at, but why Interior, for example? Well, uh, when I was working on an overview of Western American history, the book called Legacy of Conquest, I just ran into Interior every day. I mean, if you're, if you're looking at the big picture of the American West, and you're looking at case studies of big trends, you're going to be running into people from interior uh, from the past and the present all the time. So I don't think there's a single issue that Westerners carry about that doesn't care. Excuse me. I spoke there. Anyway, I don't think there's a single issue that Westerners care about that's not in some way or another got a bureaucrat at the intersection making the 
the decisions on that. And that's been true for 200 years, that the General Land Office, founded in 1812, was probably the key federal agency for, for shaping the West. So um, bureaucrats are human beings, and they are human beings who have been weirdly singled out to be considered boring. And so we have hundreds of books about cowboys and ranchers in the West, and very few books about bureaucrats in the West. And the presumption is that cowboys and ranchers are, well, they're in movies, for heaven's sake. And if you try to find an exciting movie about Mm -hmm. an employee of the General Land Office or the Office of Indian Affairs, that's hard. I have a plan, which I haven't gotten as far on as I'd like, which is to get Leonardo DiCaprio to make his next Western film, where he plays a really handsome bureaucrat from the General Land Office. And and that'll change it. It's that's where the that's where the power lies in the society is what happens in the movie. So it's nice that he played that uh, desperate fur trapper Hugh Glass. That's nice, but what we need we need him to help us with this. So the interior agencies are extremely important in the West. They are they have a national presence. There's uh, no reason to say I mean, the National Park Service has important sites that are not in the in the West. But it is so central the federal government and its operations. You cannot claim any understanding of the West until you have really paid attention to the bureaucrats. So it is my campaign to um, to make their story, not make their story, because their story is already engaging. There are, um, well, there are hair-raising tales from the Department of the Interior. Uh, in our state, Nathan Meeker was the Indian agent in the Western Slope for the Ute people, and he had a very serious power struggle with the Ute people, and the result of that was called the Meeker Massacre, and he is a very was a very interesting man. His family members were very interesting. The Ute people who finally couldn't bear it, uh, are they're very interesting. And so the notion that we would read a genuinely uh, agonizing story about this conflict and yawn, well, we need medical attention if that's, if that's <laughs> happening. We also have a kind of ridiculous habit of using the word public servant for somebody we admire who is working for a state or federal agency. And then as soon as we admire them, we take them out of the category bureaucrat and move them into the honored category public servant. So that means that only drudges and petty tyrants get left in the bureaucrat category. So I think it's really important to um, get to the full range of character, of, of virtue, wisdom, folly, yeah, mistaken yeah. moves, and just and restore that human complexity to the category bureaucrat. Yeah, that's fascinating, um, especially in light of recent events in outside of Burns, Oregon. Can you describe what is that role between the bureaucrat and, and between yeah. landowners? And, and can you describe sort of how that, that's been playing out and, um, and also how you see the history of that relationship really playing out today? Well, uh, journalists work under tight time pressure, so I'm not going to be spending – I mean, historians, can, historians take forever to write anything because that's – that's our custom. Uh, so the the journalists are out there in Oregon working hard, and I know some of the folks there, and they're right. they're good journalists. But they really don't have the time to say. Uh, they'll say very briefly in the news coverage. You'll just see the briefest reference to how in Harney County, the people at the Fish and Wildlife uh, Agency managing that wildlife refuge really worked hard with local people to come up with a resource management plan that people accepted, the great majority of people in the area accepted and lived with. Uh, the, the bureaucrats had families and lived in that community, and their their children attended school and were part of that 
that town. And that's what's really crummy about the situation is that really good efforts took place there and in lots of other locales. So to just go with the stereotype of these invaders come in from Washington, D.C., and they plunk themselves down and they start issuing edicts and rearranging people's lives, that happens. That would be ridiculous to say, oh, no, they're all gracious and gentle people. But there are so many good-hearted people, and it sounds like the Fish and Wildlife Service in that county really had a good number of those who worked hard to figure out who the local people were. And so then to hear now, uh, and these just get briefly covered, to hear uh, a story about a woman in the supermarket in Burns having uh, a T-shirt or a shirt on that said Bureau of Land Management and having one of the outsiders, one of the occupiers, come in and insult her and threaten her and Oh, man, all that work of building the the bridges. So I think you have to stand at a great and abstract distance, as I believe the Bundy family of Nevada has succeeded in doing, where you see these two categories of locals and interfering outsiders, and you have to keep your distance from reality to have that, because when you get closer, you see federal officials who are really long-time residents who know where they are, who who work with people. I mean, all of the federal agencies or land management agencies are under very tight strictures about doing public participation and public input. So they they might not enjoy it all the time, but they are there listening a lot. And so for the Bundys, who I will say the Bundys are people who realistically perceive that raising cattle is a lot of work and having press conferences is more enjoyable and more satisfying and more gratifying, and who can fault them for thinking that one would be more fun than the other. But it's it's very sad how much uh, good work they've disrupted by by their stance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely interesting. I think for most of the news that I've seen, anyone from the BLM is is termed BLM, and anyone who's an individual is referred to by their name, and and that's a really interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, and. I, I, as I, I saw a brief reference, I don't know if this is true, so I should sort of, but apparently uh, the decision was reached to transfer most of the people who'd worked at the refuge out of there because it was just be too uncomfortable and too unsettling and, and too scary a place to be. And that, I, I, years ago, I was at a Bureau of Land Management summit and I was at a reception. I met a man who was working in Wyoming and he this was this was like 1990 two or three, and he told me a story about being a Bureau of Land Management agent in eastern Wyoming, and he was supposed to do a forum on the designation of a river, um, that proximity possible designation as a wild and scenic river. And he went to the town, I guess I'll leave the town unnamed, and the day that he was going to hold his public hearing, public input, that there was an ad in the on the town newspaper that said BLM agent to appear bring tar and feathers. Joke could be a joke, and he called security for BLM and they said oh, that's a joke. Okay, maybe that's a joke. And then he went into the only space available was a bar, and it only had an entrance at the front, and they had put his uh, a table in a area for him to stand at the back of the bar, and he walked in there and just thought, "Am I making a?" A bad move and going mm-hmm. in there, and he he was there was no physical violence in it. But when I heard that story, I mean that was almost twenty five years ago that I heard that story, and I thought this is where academics need to be. Academics need to be 
in some kind of uh, taking the heat going forward, making presenting ideas, moderating forums, demanding that uh, everybody listen respectfully. They can disagree. We have a wonderful custom at the Center of the American West that is called respiratory protest. So I never say to an audience, you must listen deferentially and compliantly to the speaker. I say, we encourage you to protest, but we ask you to engage in respiratory protests. So when you disagree with the speaker, we ask you to sigh with exasperation. We ask you to (laughs) snort with contempt. We ask you to gasp with disbelief. You can do all that, but you have to keep it respiratory so that your neighbor can hear the speaker. So, which actually, weirdly, seems to work. (laughs) People seem to do it. I I also say you may hiss. That's legitimate too. And so that often makes the audience hiss me just to get get in practice and out of their system. So anyway, I just feel like academics really need to be out there hosting the forums uh, in a not a professorial pompous manner, but really just saying, we'll take this on. And meeting that man and hearing his story about having to go give this presentation with the words tar and feathers in play, that was where I just thought that this is where we need to be. Absolutely. No, that's, that's really interesting. I've never heard that, but it seems like a great compromise to, to be able to um, sigh rather than... Yes, I, I believe I'm the um, originator of this, and, but I, I, just, it's, I believe I was the first. I've never heard of it before, but I hope it will catch on. And it actually came to me because my students had been assigned to come to some of these forums on hydraulic fracturing, and several of, and they were to write about their, their impressions of the evening, and several of them noted that people around them were sighing with exasperation, and, all, and I thought, well, that's good. We should really encourage that. So it's the folk were actually manifesting the behavior. The students called it to my attention, but I think I'm the first one to say this could save society. And yet it is not my intellectual property, and I hope anyone who wants to will rip this off and (laughs) and put it to play. Um, So that kind of leads me to to ask about, so you were just named the new Colorado Mm -hmm. State Historian. Um, I think that that seems, it's related to the government, correct? I'm a bureaucrat. Right, there Woo-hoo. you go. <laughs> um, well, so, I've been a bureaucrat for a couple of weeks now, so. Yeah, so so how do you see that role? Um, do you have hopes for it and, and kind of expectations, and especially in light of, you know, the, the conflicts that mm-hmm. you've seen go on between governments right. and landowners? Right, I mean, I, I have, by being appointed state official state historian, I have become a bureaucrat, but in fact, I was an employee of a state university for a long time, so it would be, Professors don't like that term for themselves, but I think the more that we just say, well, what do you know, I work for the, the state government, uh, the more forthright we are, with better it will be. So now it's, I should say I'm, I'm, I'm a wonderful, I have a wonderful situation with my university where my activities outside the university are considered an important part of my job, so I am not paid a state historian because that would be double dipping, and then I would be a criminal. So who wants that? Um, so as state historian, in lots of ways, I just get to continue what I've been doing for years in Colorado, which is to be outside the university, speaking to a wide, wide range of audiences. Um, It's hard to think of an occasion in the last five or six years where I've given a speech and someone hasn't come up to say, oh, I heard you last week at such and so, or I first heard you 20 years ago. So I've been a very public figure speaking on behalf of historical perspective. And now I think I just have a better amplification system that I have uh, with the state historian, more of a microphone. I always try to be responsible and to think before I speak. I would say that that's even more important now because uh, the governor took, I don't know if he took a risk, but given how outspoken I used to be 30 years ago, I guess it was a risk Mm -hmm. if anybody was looking back to those days. So I want to be even more careful about making sure that I'm doing something that won't make 
bad situations worse. Um, and I also get to be quite central in the role of choosing subjects for exhibits at the State Historical Society and thinking through how to really make that at work. So for instance, one of the first things that I'm, it looks like I might go for, I don't know for sure, I want to do a thing on horses. Because horses are charismatic, they are the most charismatic of charismatic megafauna, uh, and they are, they raise issues of cultural diversity because the Spanish bring the horses to North America, the tribes uh, pass them on and adapt to horse riding, and so you can't get anywhere near the history of horses in the state of Colorado without getting very multicultural, without having to say, and now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to point out the diversity of our population. You have to do it because that's what the story requires. Horses um, are working animals, and they are recreational animals, and so they go right at a core question of what's going on in the West and rural and urban relations. And they are probably the most intractable problem for a federal agency at the moment. I mean, the Bundys caught the headlines. The 1971 Wild Horse and Burrow Act requiring the Bureau of Land Management to manage um, and to treat the horses as legitimate occupants of, of public lands, uh, Bureau of Land Management has a terrible burden on that. And the expense of that and the uh, fact that you cannot you cannot make steaks and cat food and dog food out of, out of them, there are no... Uh, working slaughterhouses to deal with that so that they are kept in pens and that's very expensive and a lot of the BLM is one of the most underfunded agencies anyway and so maintaining this horse thing and then these people who on all sides are very very passionate so we did a project once with the Bureau of Land Management and I said you know but to really get attention for this we should have a, uh, a session or two sessions on horses wild horses and the experienced people said don't do that it will take over the whole show we'll have Horse advocates protesting, blocking people's entrance will have, uh, whatever it was we thought we were going to talk about, will end up just getting pulled into that maelstrom of strong strong feelings. So you could, you could track the history of horses from the introduction of the Spanish down to our times and arrive in our times, I think, in better shape for thinking calmly about who we are in relationship to these animals and the grazing land that these animals uh, occupy on the public land. So very environmental issue and very complex cultural, social, political story as well. So Mm -hmm. come visit our horse. I mean, everyone loves, teenage girls are to stereotype, but they love horses. And so we'll have have mobs of teenage girls going to our exhibits. Yeah, no, that sounds extremely interesting. so do you think being an environmental historian or a historian mm-hmm. that's worked a lot on, on questions of landscape and um, how does that, how do you, or how do you intend to bring that to, to your role as the Colorado State Historian? And do you think that's a perspective that has mm-hmm. been there quite a lot before or do you think that's something that really needs to be strengthened? I think environmental history uh, reflects what often happens in academic disciplines that people are paying attention to something but it's not called an official field, and so they don't pay attention as carefully and rigorously and consistently as they might. So, uh, I mean, for heaven's sake, for I don't know how you would ever write the history of the American West without writing something about minerals, and the, because what on earth would bring all those people into California or into Colorado in 1859? And right. um, so, but you wouldn't necessarily say now we're doing environmental history. You would say we're doing the history of mining and and westward expansion. So 
I think it was really good to have a phase where the accent went on a field called environmental history and all sorts of things that had been taken for granted and not really thought about got called into that. Now, I think we're in a stage where we get to notice that it was ridiculous and improbable and preposterous and ineffective to do regular old history without attention to the physical environment. So my wonderful friend, Mark Fiji, F-I-E-G-E, who teaches at Colorado State University, he wrote a book which is called The Republic of Nature, and it's, I think it's called that. It's called something very much like that. And what he did was take regular, familiar old stories that you have to cover in American history courses and show the environmental dimensions. So the Civil War, the American Revolution, uh, Brown versus Board of Education and desegregation. As soon as you think about it, you think, oh, segregation. That's about physical space and the allotment of physical space and, and some people getting penalized with less appealing space. Uh, Linda Brown from the case, Brown versus Board of Education, the key desegregation case, had to walk across a horrible train yard. And so there's all kinds of issues of the trains bringing in resources from rural areas. And it's, it's so for a while, we would have called that African-American history, or we'd call it the history of civil rights. And now, thank heavens, we can just say, maybe the categories are not the key here, maybe loosening that up. So I think what was for a time, uh, almost segregated as environmental history. We now think human beings are material creatures. And how did we ever have that anywhere but as a central recognition? That if we are going to understand human beings in the present or the past, we had better be paying attention to where they're getting their food, where they're getting their water, where they're, how they're heating their homes, how they're getting clothing, um, how, how they exist as creatures that viruses don't really care that you are a smart person with a high consciousness and and different from another kind of mammal. I mean, a virus is just going to say, oh boy, worm, opportunity. Got it. So uh, disease is another way in which we just have to say, well, material beings and in very complicated interactions with our environment. So is... Is that something that you would you would recommend that you know the the next generation of environmentalists coming through the school of forestry? What are the kinds of things we should be thinking about in um, in the the fight for climate action or in the fight for environmental justice um, to keep in mind that history or to think beyond yes. those categories? I think there would there is a bunch of reasons why young folks interested in environmental history issues uh, should study history. And one of them is so that we will have money going to history departments. We'll just say that, frankly. So, <laughs> but, we, but that's fair to say you have to make it clear why it's of value to the historians and not just say, we'll keep you because we've always had you. So uh, one big reason is what I mentioned, that it does lower the tension. If you get a longer time span in mind, um, it's not just that this urgent moment before us. There's the reality that there have been lots of urgent moments. And there's a recognition that there's no reason to be fatalistic because a lot of really improbable changes have occurred. When, if you're back in uh, looking at the West in the 1850s and 1860s, you would have no reason to think that there would there would be no possibility of saying, oh, I can see here that we're going to have a movement of conservation and preservation that's on the horizon. You couldn't see that coming. So... History remains very improbable and very contingent, and that's a very good reminder to say this is where we are in 2016, and it would be preposterous to say, 
oh, we know where we're going to be in, in 2050. Uh, there's just extraordinary changes in, in human thinking and what people are willing to support and what they're not willing to support. And I, I just think that improbability is a huge advantage. And then I will also say that stories, it seems like everybody who's talking to scientists these days about communication are saying to scientists and engineers, you do better with stories than you do with PowerPoint slides displaying graphs of your data. You should certainly keep those graphs and use those. But you will have so much more interest in those graphs if you frame them with a story first. And that is the major spectacular property holding that we have in history is that we are the the bankers of stories. We have, we have just vaults and vaults and vaults of stories. And putting them in relationship to stories of contemporary people, that's that's the way to engage an audience. What didn't go so well, in my opinion, for the environmental cause was that it, over the years, sometimes ended up in a muddle of uh, gloom and darkness. And saying to people, in essence, saying to citizens, you have just made a terrible mess. And that's the kind of people you are, is you just go around making messes. And really a grim uh, overview of the human situation and an unintentionally demoralizing way of saying, since you were quite crummy people, I don't know, I guess you could try to stop, but I don't even know if you can. So, so I think it's really important to get uh, stories that are engaging show the capacity of the human will to take on a bad situation and and to turn it in a better direction. And it was a little bit unthought out as a process. In some ways, the stance of some environmental, very audible environmental advocates was to say basically something pretty much like Calvinism in the fall. We were in Eden. We sinned. Now we're cast out of Eden and we're in darkness. That's not motivating. Well, I guess a lot of people have converted to Christianity because of it, so maybe it's a little <laughs> bit motivating. But it goes out of your—you can't get the—we'll reckon with it. We'll face up to it. If you've if you've said we were in paradise and now we're not, that's not a that's not a action plan there. So I think historical perspective really uh, shows how bad human beings have been as prophets, and suggests to us that we might as well make positive predictions as negative predictions. Um, people making predictions usually turn out to be wrong, so you might as well err on the side of thinking things could get better. Right. So in, in terms of also of other things that we can kind of infuse into the environmental conversation, you've advocated a lot for the importance of humor in public debate. Yes. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, given the gravity that usually accompanies mm-hmm. the research and the discussions around environmental problems, how do you think humor can play a greater part in these conversations? Uh, I was on a panel just a couple of days ago in Colorado at the Colorado Water Congress with a very, very accomplished environmental leader environmentalist leader in Colorado. And when I mentioned the humor thing, he said, uh, environmentalists have never been known for their senses of humor. I thought, well, that's a problem. People who have not experienced tragedy, and I don't know who those people would be, but if, if you have not been in tragic situations, you might think that tragedy and humor are antithetical and can't be near each other. But people who have been in tragic circumstances know that out of nowhere something seems funny. My my first husband died of a stroke 11 years ago, and it was incredibly sad. 
And then every once in a while, something that would happen, and he had a good sense of humor, so something would happen, and it would just make us, my sister was visiting for a while, and just laugh and laugh and laugh, and then we'd think, what are we doing here? We're grieving people. What are we doing? But there's nothing in our wiring that says we must pick one mood and stick with that mood for days and days and never vary from that mood. And in fact, it's a very natural response to to see something other than darkness and grimness and maybe be even more because of the darkness and grimness to be even more in the mood to, to laugh. Indian people have had... Um, well, the phrase that we hear these days of uh, slavery as the nation's original sin, well, another original sin was the conquest and displacement of Indian people, and that is a very terrible history of, of cruelty and and dispossession and relocation and so on. And Indian people uh, have cultural customs of robust humor. I was very fortunate at the University of Colorado for years. My office was very close to the probably the most important American Indian intellectual, Vine Deloria Jr., who was Lakota. And I was often laughing harder than I could breathe because he was he was really funny and I will say that making fun of me was a particular gift of his <laughs> so it was really, but it was a wonderful thing I'd come up the stairs and walk by his office on my way to my office and almost always end up walking to my office laughing sometimes pretty sharp and cutting humor but wonderful humor and that is not uncharacteristic of people who have been through tough times is to have uh not a sense of we must never smile again, but we have to smile again. And if we don't laugh again, they've they've killed us. They have really killed us at that point. And that's so not the case with Indian people and the sense of humor. And do you see that as a as sort of a galvanizing force in in the fight for climate action mm-hmm. or, you know? I feel that I have had incredible success with limericks, which is not surprising. <laughs> well, I guess it is surprising because you could have the name and not be any good at it. Uh, so I feel that limericks have opened all kinds of doors. I just wrote, I'm sorry I didn't bring it with me, I brought, wrote a beautiful limerick on aging water infrastructure, which I will send to you. It is a, it's absolutely perfect as a limerick. And it it does not use the word infrastructure because that defeats art <laughs> have the word in there. But I have uh, limericks on fracking. Here's uh, one on fracking. Um, okay, Knowledge is tragically lacking on the complicated practice of fracking. Convinced they are right, people rush into fight, and no agency regulates yakking. So that limerick makes... Uh, it's a good limerick, and, <laughs> and it's true. That's another thing. Is that it's accurate. But people who abhor fracking laugh at that. And people who are in the oil and gas industry laugh at that. And I know that doesn't mean that we have now reached a warm fellow feeling and understanding, but I think it's better than when people are just glaring and smoldering. Uh, So humor is so underutilized that I have, I'll say I have screwed up maybe three or four times where I thought something was extremely funny and it really wasn't something I should have shared. I should have waited until I got home and told my husband I should not have shared that there but me I don't I'm not even sure I can get to four times where I've screwed it up most always it works and it works not in a vastly ambitious way it doesn't solve the problem but I think it it creates territory and terrain where people can think better than they could think beforehand I think it literally brings oxygen to the brain so that's nothing wrong with that Right. Well, thank you so much. Um, I wanted to see if there's anything else you'd like to talk about. Well, I think we covered quite a bit. Um, 
I guess I, I want to just say that I think society's structures um, are not all they could be for making the most of expertise in environmental issues. And so I will use a word that is disturbing to some people who are distrustful of capitalism and corporate life and so on. But I think it is time for young people to become quite entrepreneurial in putting their skill set forward, um, not just finding out what the existing jobs are, though it is important to say that the federal agencies are just on the edge of major, major waves of retirement. So it's a really good time to be thinking about working in the land management agencies, but also just thinking what kinds of institutions and positions and services do we need now for productive and and problem-solving communications? And then to design things that you could present to venture capitalists. I mean, this is very tainted. I'm a very contaminated person in some of these ways, but but I have heard the phrase, and I think I believe it, uh, good capitalists get paid for solving problems, which says something about what bad capitalists get, get paid for there as well. But, but I think it's a really good time to be innovative and original mm-hmm. as young people with skills. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much again, and um, good luck on your new position. Well, thank you. I might well need that, so thanks. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed by the interviewers and interviewees as part of On the Environment do not necessarily reflect the views of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, its affiliated faculty, staff, or supporters.